Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org. I am Father Dylan Schrader, and today on this episode, Said Contra joins the club of those podcasts who have had Dr. Gavin Kerr on to discuss the existence of God. So, Gavin, welcome. Ah, great. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. You know, thanks for inviting me on. Um, it's it's almost you know it's like a broken record now. People get me on to talk about the existence of God. We we hardly ever get to chat about anything else these days. But uh, I'm always happy to do it, and I always love talking about God because I like God quite a bit. So I'm happy to talk about him. Well, we are glad to hear about him as well. Great. And you know, I I know you've written extensively and spoken extensively on a variety of proofs for the existence of God, among other things. Recently, uh, another book from Editione Scholastice. Collecting yeah. some of your writings on God's existence. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we recommend that to our listeners for sure. Mm. Out of all the different arguments and things we could look at today, uh, I want to focus on Aquinas's fifth way. Mm. So to get started, I'll just ask you if you would, would you mind summarizing the argument of the fifth way for the existence of God? Yeah, yeah, that's no problem. So the fifth way. What, what, what Thomas is dealing with in the fifth way, um, each of the ways he takes a particular uh, springboard. So, he, he, I mean, in the first way, he starts with motion. In the second way, he starts with causality. And then, you know, sort of possibility and necessity in the third way and so on. So each of the ways has taken some sort of springboard uh, by which Thomas is going to arrive at a primary cause um, without which you wouldn't have that springboard that we have that starts the way. So in the first way, as I said, you know, motion, we start from motion and then through a complex process, uh, reasoning process, we get to a prime mover without which there would be no motion. There wouldn't be the actuality of motion. And Thomas is doing that in each of the ways. And what he does in the fifth way, he begins from the governance of things. So he begins from the fact, the observed fact that things uh, do have some sort of governance to them. And he reasons then, uh, he, he reasons then through the way to the conclusion that unless there were some prime governor or some prime principle by which all things are governed, things just would not have that governance. They wouldn't have the governance that they have. Um, and so I'll just take you through it and summarize it. And then, um, as you say, you know, we can just dive into this and that, you know, we can pick it apart and see where we go from there. How does that sound? That sounds fantastic. Okay, great. So we're starting with the governance of things. And what we mean by the governance of things is that things are ordered. Things... Um, act in certain ways uh, towards some sort of goal. They act towards an end. And so uh, the listeners of your podcast probably realize that what I'm referring to there is that uh, things which engage in action or activities have some sort of finality to them. So Thomas is observing that there's finality in things, that things act towards an end. And that's what he says at the um, very beginning. Um, he says that the fifth way is taken from the governance of things. We see that there are things without knowledge, uh, such as natural bodies that operate for an end. Now, just to set aside a bit of a confusion there to begin with, when Thomas says that we see that there are things without knowledge, such as natural bodies that operate for an end, he doesn't mean that the fifth way is exclusively concerned with you know, natural bodies acting for an end without knowledge. Rather, he's dealing with unintelligent things acting for an end. And if we can show that unintelligent things which act for an end have a principle for their end, then we can show that intelligent things as well, which act for an end, have some sort of overall principle for their end. Um, so that that's just to set aside a bit of a confusion there to begin with. And Thomas says that 
it's clear that these act for an end because they always or more frequently operate in the same way so that what is best follows. Now, we can get into what he means there by what is best in the discussion, but generally the idea is that when something, when a natural thing acts for an end without knowledge, it acts so as to achieve some sort of goal. And if it did not achieve that goal, it would it wouldn't have realized, you know, what it set out to achieve. So you take a common example like fire. Okay, so fire acts acts so, so as to achieve an end. What is it that fire does? It heats. Now, if fire does not heat, how, how could it be that there is fire without it heating? Well, the fire is quenched. Okay, so unless the fire um, achieves its goal of heating, the fire is not, you know, reaching, you know, what it's good. Okay, what is best for the fire? It's a, you know, it'll be quenched or it'll go out if it's unable to achieve its goal of heating. So when Thomas says that these natural things acting without knowledge, um, they act so that what is best results, he's basically saying is that they're acting towards their good. The fulfillment of the ends that they have is their goods. Okay, it makes them good instances of the things that they are. So Thomas goes on to say, it is apparent that it is not by chance, but by intention that they act for an end. Okay, so the, 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 the end or the goal that um, natural things have, it's not something that they have of themselves. It's not something that they have essentially, okay? So a fire doesn't determine, you know, that it's of its nature, that it should heat. It simply has that nature, but it doesn't have it of itself. So it's good in being drawn towards, you know, heating things. It's not a good that it has of itself. It has it through another. And this is going to bring up a common form of reasoning that it's found um, throughout all of the five ways. And, that, uh, and, and this is what I think is the unifying principle of the five ways, that some sort of actuality that a thing has, not through itself, but through another, is reducible to some principle which has that reality um, in itself. If I could just maybe diverge just a wee bit just to explain that, in the first way, when Thomas is talking about motion, he denies that there could be an infinite regress of moved movers by pointing out that things which have the actuality of motion non-essentially, okay, so things that have the actuality of motion through another, would not have that actuality unless there were something, some principle of motion which possesses motion per se in itself. Thomas gives the example of the mind moves the hand to move the stick to move the stone. That's the example he gives in the first way. And he points out that the hand, the stick, and the stone, they don't have motion essentially. They can still be hands, sticks, and stones without moving, but they depend on or participate in the causality of that which does have motion essentially or does have the actuality of motion essentially, and that's the mental agent. A mental agent doesn't need something to move it so that it can move its hands at sticks and the stones. You can get your golf clubs and go, go to the golf course and hit golf balls without somebody forcing you to. A mental agent is just able to originate motion. And this is uh, th this is what's known as a per se ordered causal series. And those sorts of causal series, they appear in every one of the ways. And the point is that if we have some causal actuality, which things don't possess essentially, they are dependent on something which has that causal actuality per se. And that's how it gets the prime mover in the first way, a primary cause in the second, and so on. Well, it's the same here with the fifth way. He's talking about things which have this directedness towards their ends, their ends which are their goods, okay? But they don't have that directedness per se. They need not have the, that directedness, but they do have it. So Aquinas is going to order, uh, argue that insofar as they don't have that directedness towards the good, 
of themselves, there must be, so they have it through another, there must be some per se source which directs them towards the good, which is the source of goodness. And that's going to be the conclusion of the fifth way. So in the same way, you have a per se source of motion or causality in the first and second way. You have a per se source of finality or goodness in the fifth way. Okay, so sorry for that wee tangent, but that's just to kind of, you know, tell us where we're going. So Thomas, you know, so to continue, he says, it's apparent that things which act towards an end so that the best results, i.e. they achieve their good, um, they do so not by chance, but by intention. They're ordered towards that end. Those things that do not have knowledge, they don't tend to an end unless they're directed by something with knowledge and intelligence. So we have something directing these, you know, uh, unintelligent things towards their end, towards their goods, and that which so directs them must itself be intelligent in some way because that direction towards an end is an intentional direction. They intend that end, and that, that's simply what intention means. So there's something with, with intelligence, with knowledge, some principle um, by which these natural things are drawn towards their end, and that itself must be intelligent, must work with intention. And so he concludes, all natural things then are ordered to an end by something intelligent, and this is what we call God. And so that's the fifth way in a nutshell. Well, that's beautiful. And okay. I I appreciate what you said about the common thread throughout the five ways, being mm. that the, the paraliot is reducible to the per se. Yeah. And I think if we look at even the order of the five ways, the fifth mm. way is the last one. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, I think there's good reason for that, that mm -hmm. the final cause is the cause of causes. Yes. And so when you talk about goodness, that natural things, unintelligent things, and even intelligent things seek their own good, mm -hmm. but that good is, uh, is per aliud. And yes. so yeah. we've established in the fourth way, for example, that there, there is some supreme perfection. There's mm -hmm. some being that is, that has mm -hmm. perfection and is perfection per se, and so yeah. it makes sense that in terms of the desirability of the good, mm -hmm. which leads us to final causality uh, yeah. and acting for an end, that mm -hmm. the that principle would still hold, that the, the paralia would be, would be reducible to the per se. And yeah. so you'd have God not just moving things by efficient causality or not just by you know exemplar causality or, or whatever, mm -hmm. but actually uh, directing things to their own good as mm -hmm. a participation in uh, the, what is good per se, which is himself. So as yeah, Aquinas yeah. often quotes, God has made all things for himself. And we e see that e exactly. reflected yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Just as you say that the, the, the final cause is the cause of causes. Without it, the efficient cause has no efficiency. So anything um, which is acting with efficiency is acting towards the final cause. So if you have a primary efficient cause of all things, that primary efficient cause of all things acts so that all the things that it primarily efficiently causes can achieve the good itself, um, which is God himself. Uh, and then it, it, actually in my creation book, in the, in the last chapter of it, I pointed out that if you have a primary source of existence for all things, that primary source of existence is also the primary good of all things, and that all of created reality seeks to become assimilated um, to that, you know, uh, primary good of all things in, in whatever way it can. And uh, obviously that has, you know, there's special implications for that when it comes to the human being who has a spiritual dimension who can become assimilated to the good. Well, absolutely. You know, so and as Aquinas will go on to say, 
later on in the first part, although not not much later on. Mm. In God's governance of things, he he makes necessary things to happen necessarily and mm. contingent things to happen contingently, which means yeah. to cause free things to happen freely. So yeah. the human being is moved freely to seek mm. his own good, which is a participation yeah. in the eternal good. It's an argument yeah. from providence in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, I imagine that this may be one of the more difficult arguments for modern people to accept. Mm. I think- yeah. Perhaps because we've lost the sense of final causality. Yeah, you know, just yeah. I would say modern people probably accept material and efficient causality. There's mm-hmm. there's stuff and there's stuff acting on stuff, uh, yeah. but we've yeah. kind of lost the sense of formal causality and I would say mm-hmm. a final causality. Uh, yeah. So, for example, someone might push back on what he says about natural bodies. Natural mm-hmm. bodies act for an end. Is that true? Is it true that <laughs> fire is acting for an end? when it heats. Yeah. yeah. So, um I think you're right that um I wouldn't say a lot of contemporary sort of thinkers would reject final causality. I think what they would do what they would reject would be a certain caricatured view of final causality that, you know, acting for an end means that there's some extrinsic end um, towards which you're acting as opposed to some kind of intrinsic end, which is the fulfillment of an action. Um, I think we've lost that sense of some intrinsic end that things have. So when you take the fire example, obviously the fire's act of heating is not anything extrinsic to the fire. It's simply something that fire does, given that what it is. That's precisely the notion of, you know, teleology, finality that Aquinas is working here um, with natural bodies elsewhere. You know, he says that these natural bodies have a certain disposition to, you know, act in this way. What's that disposition? Well, they're formed in a certain way. And given the way they're formed, whatever activities they engage in, they will be formed activities. So they're doing something and that's something that they are doing. That's their end, such that if they're frustrated in the doing of that something, they haven't achieved their end. And that notion of finality, I don't think it's one that the contemporary uh, thinkers uh, would reject. I think it's more the extrinsic notion of finality that you would get maybe in somebody like William Peely, um, where you have the mechanism and it has some sort of goal extrinsic to the mechanism, i.e. signifying time or signif- yeah, signifying the time of the day or whatever. It's that that more, I would call the signpost kind of finality that the thing is, you know, sort of acting as a signpost towards some sort of end, uh, which is extrinsic to it. I think a lot of people reject that sort of um, finality, but I don't think they reject a more intrinsic type that Aquinas is working with. And, and that's the only type of finality that he needs to make this argument work. Well, I appreciate that distinction, and I, I suppose, you know, what I what I wonder is, is, is there a meaningful difference between uh, what you're describing, intrinsic finality, mm-hmm. and the idea of of that finality being a cause? Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you think of something like uh, the the evolution of, of biological organisms, is what results. Mm-hmm. simply an outcome? Is it simply what happens as a result of natural selection? Or is it in some way meant to do the things that it does? So mm-hmm. yeah. are the eyes really foreseeing? Are the eyes meant to see? Or do they simply happen to see? Mm-hmm. Is fire meant to heat? Or does it simply happen to heat? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that this gets us uh, to the notion of form and nature and essence and a thing. 
I think that if we recognize that things have essences, then there is something that the eyes are for, let's say, or something that the internal organs are for. Um, that you know, the these organs that they're doing a job, which is part and parcel of the unity of the substance. Uh, that exists. And so given that you have this substance, the eyes are doing something. They're allowing the substance, you know, to see it's not, it doesn't just happen uh, that the eyes, you know, see uh, that they're permitting the, the substance to do something. So if we do grant that there is some substantial unity to things, then we will end up saying that, you know, uh, that there are certain purposes which uh, eyes and organs have. But if you deny essences, if you deny that there's a, there's a unity to substances, then of course you're just going to say, well, you know, this is just an accidental byproduct. And, you know, Darwin famously, you know, rejected essences. You know, he didn't think that there were essences because he just thought all you had was linear descent. Um, but what he rejected as essences, I don't think was is what metaphysicians affirm when we affirm essences. I don't think Darwin ever denied that individuals of a species um, can be differentiated from other individuals of a species or that individuals of a species have a certain unity to them. I don't think he ever denied that metaphysical position. I think what he is denying is a strict classification kind of, you know, essentialism, uh, because he noticed the sort of the, the, the gray areas between species. You know, how how do we know where, you know, the wolves, you know, end and, you know, canines begin, that sort of thing, um, or a German shepherd begins or whatever. There's, there's kind of gray areas in between there. And of course, that there's going to be gray areas, but metaphysically speaking, there's a fact of the matter that, you know, there is a boundary um, between these two species. And, you know, maybe the biology, the evolutionary biologist, you know, uh, as a detective can't find the, the gray areas. But if we are committed to some kind of metaphysical essentialism, we just affirm that there's a fact of the matter, but we may not know it. Uh, and we don't need to know it just to affirm essences. But I don't think uh, Darwin um, denies that sort of metaphysical um, uh, account of essences, or if he does deny metaphysical essentialism, he doesn't give us any reasons for denying it. Um, and I think we do have good grounds for affirming uh, metaphysical essentialism, and that you know substances exhibit some sort of formal unity. And if they do, then you know their their various uh, organs, you know, have some sort of purposeful, you know, uh, activity in them. I appreciate drawing the connection between uh, final cause and formal cause. I think that's really mm. important. You know, because the final cause is always about the good of a thing, which is a certain yeah. kind of thing by virtue yeah. of the form that it has. Yes. And yeah. I think most people on the on the level of common sense, most people mm -hmm. know that mm -hmm. things are for things. Mm -hmm. uh, the acorn yeah. is meant to become an oak tree. Yeah. And if it fails to do so, something has gone wrong with it. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah, so exactly. I think for me, one of the things that's powerful about the fifth way is when you realize that the final cause is a real cause, mm. it's it's not just an outcome. It's mm -hmm. not just the end state of something. It's a real cause. Mm -hmm. So the cause, at least logically, has to pre-exist the effect. Mm -hmm. In the case of final causality, the effect of the final cause would be mm -hmm. anything leading up to it, to its realization mm -hmm. in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know. So where does the final cause pre-exist yep. its effect? Well, yep. it can't be in the thing alone, <clears throat> the, the oak tree doesn't pre-exist the mm -hmm. acorn, period, mm -hmm. full stop. It has to pre-exist yep. in a mind. It has to pre-exist mm -hmm. in someone who can conceive of it because that's the only kind of existence it can have before its attainment in the real world. And so mm -hmm. when you realize the final cause is a real cause, you realize 
there has to be an intelligence behind things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the way I would typically run that argument is that I will point out that if things are acting towards some sort of an end, which is they're good, they're they're trying to realize that good. They're trying to achieve some kind of actuality that they do not have per se. Okay, and so the the fire in burning is realizing its actuality as fire. You know, the wood which hasn't you know been set on fire yet, you know, it has the potentiality to be inflamed and to be heated. Um, and then in being inflamed and being heated, fire is acting to you know realize that that actuality. So. Everything which is acting towards an end is acting towards some sort of actuality. It's it's seeking to be actualized or perfected, in which case, because such things don't have that actuality per se, they're dependent on something which is just actual uh, per se. And that uh, and so those um, things acting towards an end are mere participants in what is actual uh, per se. And so what given that they are mere participants in what is actual per se, what is actual per se has to precede them. Uh, and being for them to participate in it. And then because it's uh, the, their individual instances of actuality, there has to be something intelligent uh, which individuates that actuality, you know, as, as fire, as water, as whatever. I wonder, could you address a potential objection? Someone might say, well, Aquinas suggests that the evidence that natural bodies act for an end is that they always are for the most part act in the same way. Does he have other evidence for that? Or is that sufficient evidence to mm -hmm. warrant the inference that they do act for an end? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, Aquinas is making a metaphysical point there that fire, um, insofar as it is fire, acts to heat and illuminate, let's say. Um, so we'll stick with the heat example, but you could use illumination as well. Um, were it not to heat, were it to be doing something other than heating, it wouldn't be fire. Okay, so it's of the nature of fire that it act thus. In other words, its form disposes it to act in this way, such that were it, were it not to do so, it would have a different form. It would be water or whatever. And so when Aquinas is adducing evidence, it, it's not really sort of an, an inductive empirical investigation saying, you know, here, look at a load of these things and they all act in the same way. He's sort of making a, a tighter, more deductive argument than that, that given that these things are such and such, they will act in such and such a way. Were they not so to act, then they would have a different form uh, than what they would have. So there's a very close connection then between the, the, the final, the finality um, which directs a thing's action uh, and the form uh, that the thing has. So I think um, when he adduces that evidence, he's making a metaphysical observation rather than a more inductive empirical observation. I think that's very good to point out because just reading the fifth way on the face of it without any other background, you might think, well, he's simply looking out into the world and seeing there are certain phenomena that occur pretty often. Yeah. And therefore, we ascribe some kind of intelligence that's just mm. causing all these things to happen. And yeah. you, you might even misunderstand the other example he gives about the arrow flying toward mm. the target being shot by the archer and to yeah. say, well, you know, that's that's an example of of really violent motion. Something's being mm. imposed on this arrow from the outside. It's not natural yeah. to it. And yeah. to say, well, the whole world is like that. Uh, but mm. I agree. That's not what he's doing at all. Mm. I think. Yeah. I think. Yeah. To go back to your point about the the connection between final cause and formal cause, things are acting for a good by virtue mm. of the kind of thing that they are. They have their own yeah. kind of good to pursue and yeah. to pursue that. And yeah. if we can imagine a situation where we looked out into the world 
and we didn't see things acting in predictable ways, at least for the most mm. part. You know, we would yeah. have no way of recognizing mm. when something has gone right and when something has gone wrong. We'd have yeah. no way of yeah. really distinguishing yeah. one kind of thing for an, from another in that case, mm. because it's, yeah. the, it's the effects and the actions of things that uh, is a big part of how we come to know the essences of things. Exactly. Even if we can't yeah. define them, we can distinguish, mm -hmm. like you say, fire from water because mm -hmm. they behave differently. Yeah. They have different yeah. qualities. They have different attributes and they have different effects. And if they didn't, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be able to distinguish them. So yeah. uh, one of the things I go back to sometimes in terms of just recognizing the reality of final causes mm -hmm. is the fact that we we can conceive of things acting for an end. If there were not real finalities and things, would we even have a concept of finality? An objection to that could be, well, we are intelligent beings. And mm -hmm. so we have an experience of acting for an end within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in a certain sense, that can't be explained by anything more basic to us. You know, you can't mm -hmm. you can't prove to someone that they have free will. You just have to experience mm -hmm. it. Do we impose that on the mm -hmm. world? Is that an un is that an unfair imposition from our own perspective to look at natural things and to say that they must be acting for an end mm -hmm. uh, because we act for an end, mm -hmm. uh, or is the notion of end analogous here? Yeah, so um, we act for an end in an intelligent manner. Um, so uh, I mean, setting aside the whole sort of notion of intentionality and free will and everything, when when we seek to do something, we we see some sort of goal and we take steps to do it. Um, and that, and that's our acting for an end. Um, but that's not the way that say fire acts for an end. And so in the example in, in the fire example, when we say that fire is acting for an end, we're simply saying that it's doing something and the something that it's doing is the end that it's achieving. Um, and so if somebody were to suggest that we're imposing acting for an end from the observation of it in ourselves to the natural world, well, what we're observing in ourselves is not the same kind of acting for an end that we see in fire. Certainly analogously, when I see a goal and I take steps to undertake it, I'm doing something. And when fire heats, it's doing something such that if I didn't achieve my goal or if fire didn't heat, what I was striving to do would be frustrated. But that's where, you know, the sort of the commonality ends. The way in which I am doing something and the way in which fire is doing something um, are different. I'm doing it intelligently and fire is doing it unintelligently. So as through any good analogous notion, the thing signified, the acting towards an end, you know, the doing of something, the thing signified is the same in both cases. But the mode of signification, the way in which it's done um, is different and it's unintelligent in the fire example. So I don't think there's a strict imposition of an observation in us to something uh, in the real world. There's just too much of a, a difference in the mode of signification to say that we've just imposed that on the things. Yeah, I appreciate that. And to reverse that a little <laughs> bit, that also means that when we speak about God, we can speak about God acting for an end in a certain sense, but yep. there's a much more fundamental sense in which <laughs> arriving at that at that level of perfection or that level of actuality mm -hmm. god simply is the end of all things yes. and he's acting not to acquire anything but to direct mm -hmm. other things to himself yeah absolutely you know? yeah when god uh, god is necessitated to will the divine essence 
Okay, so that that's the good itself. God's necessitated the will that he can't will, uh, he can't not will the divine essence. In other words, he can't not love himself. He is not necessitated to create, so that when he does create, he creates out of the love that he has for himself. So all creatures are an expression of that love that he has for himself. For himself, and the motivation then to create is that creatures might experience the love that God has for himself. Uh, and so that's why creatures exist because God loves himself. Um, and so whenever God, uh, in willing things and in, in, in doing something, he does it out of, you know, his self-love, uh, that, that divine self-love interesting corollary of that is that given that God, given the creatures exist because God loves them and he loves them because he loves himself, there's nothing that any creature could do to cause God to stop loving it precisely because he loves creatures in virtue of himself, uh, and not in virtue of what they are. In a really nice way, that causes the the fifth way to lead into the two responses to the objections in mm -hmm. the third article of the second question yeah. uh, of, the, of the first part. There there are only two objections that Aquinas poses, and they're probably the the two best ones. Of course, in other places he deals with things at much greater length. But yeah, you've got the objection uh, from evil, and then you've yep. got the objection that. We don't need any higher principle to explain things. Mm -hmm. Everything's already explainable to us. Yeah. And in both cases, it seems to me that the fifth way, the governance of things kind of leads into the response to those objections, because in the, the response to the first objection, we're dealing with evil. We're dealing with things that have gone wrong. So to have this sense that there is a supreme good and a supreme intelligent good that is not threatened by evils in the world. So God is not made worse by anything going wrong in the world. And in fact, God's supreme intelligent goodness can direct even the deviations of things in the world, even the failures to achieve, achieve the end among creatures to the overall greater end, which is yeah. itself. And in this yeah. response to the second objection, Aquinas, mm -hmm. again, goes back to this idea that there has to be the direction <laughs> of a higher agent. Mm -hmm in things yeah. that act for an end yeah yeah so that when you have natural things you know they, they they you know are drawn back ultimately to some sort of primary higher cause and this is where he brings in the actions of intelligent beings namely mm -hmm. human yeah. beings is what he says but of course it would include yeah. angels in that as well so yeah. in, in the fifth way itself he just talks about mm -hmm. natural things but i think you are sure. you yeah. are warranted in saying that he applies this mm -hmm. to intelligent agents as well because he says mm -hmm. that yeah. in the response to objection two that mm -hmm. the human will has got to be also directed to some higher end to some higher cause yes yeah yeah because the human will uh, as you see in the you see it in the prima secundae uh, as well that the human will can re rest in the good itself so what brings the human will into operation qua good um if it's just some sort of you know limited instance of the good is not something that brings the human will to rest so the human will only comes to perfection or completion becomes fully itself when it when it rests in the highest good which is god so without that highest good that you know final end the human will doesn't have any activity or operation exactly because again the the final cause is the cause of causes and yeah, sure our our own our own individual choices here and now have to be explained by the desire for some some ultimate i got to say that the the article where or the question where aquinas goes through the candidates for human happiness i think mm. is is one of the most powerful in the summa yeah yeah and he he goes through all the all the things you might expect and mm. eliminates them all and mm -hmm. 
in the end, the, you know, the question is, does human beatitude consist in any finite good and any created good? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. You know, so exactly. it's, it's yeah. like Augustine says, we were made for yeah. uh, God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And yeah. so mm-hmm. I think perhaps in a certain way, there is an experiential version of the fifth way that we could mm-hmm. offer to people. There's the more mm-hmm. robust metaphysical cosmological argument that we've been discussing, but you could mm-hmm. turn that around and do an anthropological argument, looking at the, mm-hmm. ex- the experience of restlessness or the experience yeah. of the desire for a happiness or a good that we cannot find anywhere in this world. Uh, yeah, something like yeah. what uh, what C.S. Lewis does when he talks about mm-hmm. joy and the experience yeah. of, of seeking for happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, as memory serves me, Robert Spitzer as well in his new proofs for existence of God talks about this desire for home. Um, this, this, this is a notion that he gets from Lonergan, a desire for home and the place of rest, uh, the place where all longing ceases. He, he he offers a similar sort of argument than uh, uh, as that, and, and and I think you're right. You know, anthropologically speaking, um, we are aware that um, n- no good, which is an instrumental good, i.e., a good that can be willed for another, is a good in which we can take rest. We always take rest in some sort of good that can't be willed for another. And given that we take rest in some sort of good that can't be willed for another, that means that the proper object of our will is the good uh, beyond which nothing further can be willed, um, which can only be found in God, the good itself. Exactly. So applying the structure of the fifth way, if we look at the human being and hmm. we rec- we ask ourselves, what is the proper end of the human being? And hmm. if we can come to the realization that that proper end is nothing in the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, granted, we have lots of instrumental or lots of partial ends leading up to that point, but mm-hmm. the ultimate end is mm-hmm. nothing to be found in the world. And if we can really recognize that about the human being, we will also come to realize mm-hmm. that that same end, which is what we hope to acquire ultimately, mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. same being that is directing us to that end, namely to yeah. himself. Yeah, and so there's this there's this beautiful kind of symmetry where God is the first and the last. Yeah, yeah, it's very Neoplatonic. Uh, the idea that you know the, the good uh, as the source of all things draws all things uh, to itself, and in drawing all things to to itself, it draws them into existence. They have to exist in order to be so drawn uh, to that good as final end. So the, the activity of the good is, in fact, a creative activity. Otherwise, there there wouldn't be things that can be drawn towards the good. Absolutely. Uh, mm. One one final observation that I have is that the objection from the problem of evil, mm. which could also be lodged <laughs> against the fifth way, mm. I think on Aquinas' principles actually becomes evidence for God. Okay. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. the the very I because the very fact that we recognize when something has gone wrong mm-hmm. means that we have a standard or an expectation with yeah. some basis in reality for how things ought to go. Yeah. And once you yeah. have a notion of of oughtness, once you have a notion mm-hmm. that there is an end that is yeah. meant to be attained, yeah, uh, then the fifth way is up and running. So the very experience of evil is evidence for the existence of God when you apply the principles of the fifth way. Yeah, yeah. It also ties in with the fourth way here as well, because the experience of evil uh, discloses to us that uh, there could be something better. 
uh, something has gone wrong and things could be better. And if things could be better, then the things that we have them now are not per se good, but only participations in the good. And so point to uh, the good, which is per se uh, the good the good itself. Again, the parallel to the per se uh, the distinction there. So if we do experience evil, we realize that our reality could be better. It's limited in its goodness and thus directed, uh, thus striving after what is good in itself. I appreciate that. Well, are there any final observations or comments that you'd like to make about the fifth way? Um, not not really. No. Um, I th I think one thing that readers um uh, should bear in mind when they engage with the fifth way is to just um forget about Paley and design arguments and teleological arguments. Forget about intelligent design. Uh, all all of that. Yeah, I think in some translations of the fifth way, you know, they have Thomas saying that. They act, you know, not that they act fortuitously, but they act designedly. And then every all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know, things start firing in people's head and, and they just think this is a design argument. This is all he's doing is a design argument. And it's not at all what Thomas is doing. Um, he was aware of design arguments, but um, he doesn't endorse them. Um, so I think just when engaging with the fifth way, just try to keep that idea that what is per allude, what is through another is reducible to what is per se. And in the fifth way, it's, you know, finality in terms of the good here. And we're, we're looking at something which is good per se, moving for, from something which is, you know, good through another to what is good in itself. And if you read the fifth way, you know, like that, uh, you can't really go far wrong with it. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for outlining the fifth way so beautifully for us and connecting it to the principle that that runs throughout all five ways. And in fact, Aquinas's other proofs for the existence of God, that mm. the per aliot is reducible to the per se. Again, yeah. I want to recommend to our listeners your recent book, collecting some of your various writings on the existence of God. Yeah. And uh, Gavin, I want to thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it. You know, any, anytime you need me, just, you know, drop me an email and we'll get on again. Well, I hope to do that. And thanks so much to our listeners today. This has been Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. You can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org.